Roaring back to life, it's F1 break check. This week, we're talking about the greatest innovations in Formula One that were banned, and sometimes quite quickly. We'll also be talking about the latest news and rumors. So sit back, grab your drink bottle, and settle in. F1 break check is go, go, go. Welcome. You are listening to F1 break check, the epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective. With your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. Let's talk about news and rumors, first of all. So it looks like Salver, formerly Alfa Romeo, and Williams have announced the date of their 2024 car reveal as February 5th. So we're starting to see more and more dates being set. I'm kind of surprised that Williams and Salver both agreed to reveal their cars on the 5th. But I guess because of time differences, because Salver being a Swiss outfit and their factory being based in Switzerland... Um, as opposed to Williams being in England, you know, they are, you know, uh, I believe it's either one or two time zone differences. It's, it's that, an hour, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it is an hour difference. So I guess that does kind of make sense that they would both be okay with doing it on the fifth. Once upon a time, they would either reveal the car a couple days before, or they would actually do the unveiling like the night before they broke cover for preseason testing. But now with the governance over preseason testing and everything, you know, I guess that, you know, it's not quite as important because the teams can't, you know, run the car. Most of the time can't run the cars right away mm-hmm. because with the bands and everything being in place or if they're able to run it, the testing ban does allow for them to actually run the car for a quote unquote limited amount of time. And I forget what the number of laps is, but they're allowed to run it for a couple of laps after the car is revealed before preseason testing, but it's only for quote unquote filming. I haven't seen anything about any of the team's filming schedules or anything like that. I'm excited that we're starting to get dates and and we're going to see an end to the, the quietness. As a fan that does not know, where do I go to find that information? Google is your friend. Usually the quickest way that I find it is a direct link that you can take and actually download the FIA's sporting regulations as like a PDF where you can take and you can actually search through the PDF. And a lot of times that's where I'll take and pull my information from as well. Those are the two confirmed dates to go along with Ferrari's confirmed date. But now also just in the last day or so, we've gotten a rumor broke that Mercedes will be revealing their 2024 car on Valentine's Day, February 14th. I saw a couple places try to really badly try to read something into, you know, being Valentine's Day and everything, but which I'm not going to repeat here, but um, <laughs> so I don't oh, think I love any... conspiracy theory though, you know, oh, I, do I don't too. believe them, but I just love hearing them. You know, it's, it's like, just as a quick aside, uh, for the longest time, my family believed that I believed in aliens, you know, because I, I would watch the shows. And it wasn't me believing in aliens. It was me actually finding it very funny of these people's theories about, you know, stones, <laughs> yes. all that stuff, how the pyramids were created. No, it was not aliens. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, that's an aside. <laughs> no, I love that. That's awesome. So, no, I think it just so happens that, you know, I, I got to, you know, it traditionally it's, you know, there, there's no hard and fast rule, but traditionally it's usually the further back in the pack that a team finished the previous year in the Constructors' Championship. 
-hmm. the sooner that they would reveal their car with the higher place teams. Now there's no hard and fast rule. There's been other times where some teams have been like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to unveil the car on X date. And then for whatever reasons, there was like delays or something. And then they end up canceling that. There has been a number of times where the cars don't even get revealed literally until they show up for preseason testing. Forget what year it was, but I do remember that maybe two or three years ago, one of the teams literally unveiled the car at preseason testing after testing had already started. They actually wow. had run last year's car, the previous year's car for the first day of testing because the new car wasn't ready yet. And they literally like trucked it in to the preseason testing and unveiled it like on the second or third day of testing. <laughs> so I, better late I, than never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With Ferrari unveiling their car later in the month, I think it's just a matter of Mercedes trying to unveil theirs around the same time to take and try to get the media cycle before the Ferrari hype kicks in. So we'll yeah. see. Did you see the mysterious comments made by outgoing Alpatari team principal Franz Toast that he made to Crofty over at Sky One Sports? Yeah, I, I saw okay. you saw a note. I, I'm very curious on this. Yeah. Yes. So apparently he, in a pretty wide ranging interview with Crofty, he actually said that there are two drivers on the grid who do not deserve to be in Formula One. And Crofty admitted that he had already kind of had the same two drivers in mind before the interview was conducted that he was thinking the same thing. And I thought it was very, very telling. It made me question, so if you were to take and pick two drivers that you don't think belong on the F1 grid, which two are you picking? Or which two do you don't think deserves to be there? An easy one would be Lance Troll. I mean, that's right. as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, Lance Troll, okay. But, you know, I, I say that, and this season was mixed for him, but mm -hmm. he did have a couple really good races, but... Yeah, if we were going down that line, I'd definitely say him because you want somebody that's a fair compliment to Alonzo and Stroll just is not it. He would be one. My other one would be Logan Sargent just because he had such a rough year that first year coming out. So that those would be my two. What about you? Yep. Well, on I would definitely agree with you on the latter one. I'm really, really happy that Williams did give him another year because you're right. The first half of the year for Sargent was just a complete disaster. And how much of that came down to driver, how much of it came down to the car not really suiting him and suiting Albon so much better. So I can definitely see, I don't necessarily agree that he doesn't deserve to be on the grid, but I can definitely see how a lot of the team principals, they're taking a slightly different view of it. We're looking at it from the outside and we have a tendency to allow certain biases in yeah. to our thinking we talked about during the season my thoughts on having sergeant in formula one was a good thing especially with the having an american in formula one was a good thing but toast and crofty are looking at it would i have either one of these two drivers in one of my cars whether it be as a racing driver or even just as a testing slash reserve driver yeah. and i'm pretty sure that he would say sergeant and the other one that at the beginning of the year i didn't think belonged in there was mm -hmm. Granu. So I really? didn't think Joe huh. Granu really deserved to be in Formula One because he had been just so outclassed by Botas. Yeah. Especially well, it's Botas, so. <laughs> 
it's you know, true. It's kind of That's unfair. Very true. Yeah. I guess, and, and to extend that, I guess it's a little unfair for me to say what I said about Lance Stroll and Alonzo. So yeah, I could see that. But, and I didn't even think about Lance Stroll because the whole thing is, is we talked about this during the season and everything that the fact that Lance Stroll has been outclassed by his teammates, you know, right. in his time in Formula One, he was outclassed by this year by Alonzo, former world champion. He was outclassed last year by Vettel. But again, world champion, you know, you're yes, talking about exactly, four, so. four time uh, world champion uh, with Alonzo. You're talking about a two year time world champion. So these aren't yeah. like Corey Brune going out there and racing <laughs> and beating him. Right. It's not so very true. Yeah. Yes. And the thing is, though, is as we talked about during the season is you can buy your way into Formula One. You can't just buy your way into Formula One. It was like what we talked about last week with the pointing system. Yep. For license, the yeah. F1 super license is you have to have achieved a certain level of accomplishment in mm -hmm. the lower ranks just to get your Formula One super license. You just can't buy a formula show up and say, hey, I got billions of dollars. I want to drive right. in Formula One. Here's my money. Once one yeah, time exactly. you could, but yeah. you can't anymore now, with, especially with the restrictions on the super license and everything. Right. And the thing is, is that a lot of people don't remember is that in equal machinery, Lance Stroll on the regular in F3 was regularly beating guys who are much more highly regarded now. I mean, he was beating the Leclerc's and the Norris's of the world. Yeah. Back when he was in the lower ranks, it's only that these other drivers were actually able to manage to make that jump from Formula 2, Formula 3 into Formula 1. They were able to make that transition much easier than what Stroll could. I keep holding out hope that Stroll, because he is in the lower ranks, he was so much more accomplished. Yeah, that I keep hoping that he's going to turn that corner, especially having former world champions as his teammates. Right. which I think we started to see at times this year in certain races he did. Yeah. I mean, he was able to hold his own against his much more highly regarded teammate. I'm just hoping that he can turn that corner on his transition. I'm going to make two points here real quick. One, the fact that he's at Aston Martin, which this year took made a huge leap in performance towards the front of the grid. That's part of what a lot of people take and look at. Well, now that he's in a much more competitive car, he should have been able to do more. Fair or unfair, the fact that his father owns the team, there's always going to be those cries of nepotism. And the only reason why he has the seat that he has is because of his father, which again, like we talked about during the season, yes, he has that seat because of his father in a much more competitive car, but he still had to earn his way into yeah. Formula One. So it's kind of a double-edged sword from a pressure standpoint as well. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, like I said before, this year was phenomenal. There were, you know, obviously some races that made you question how this guy was in at Formula One. But, you know, yes. on the whole, especially when the car was performing well before their slight, or I shouldn't say slight, their dramatic downgrade during the later part of the season, he was doing really well. In fact, there's a couple of times mm -hmm. that he even beat Alonso. Not many, but again... You're looking at a two-time world champion. And let's be honest, Alonzo is really good. Even <laughs> yes. with the people that are out on the grid today have a hard time with him. So yes, I saw this meme a while back, and I don't remember if, if you and I talked about it offline or if we talked about it on the podcast, but it was basically a picture of his dad, and it had an idea bubble, and it, it said something like, should I just fire my son from the team 
And then the caption down below had another picture of him and he said, or should I make him just look like he's performing so poorly by hiring former <laughs> world champion? And yeah, what he's doing. I really think that given the car, I think that we can see Lance perform a lot better than what we've seen him in the past. When he was performing up against Vettel, I don't think we were able to see the best of Lance. And yes. hopefully next year with Vettel's improvements as well as Alonzo's improvements and the engineering improvements that they're going to be making over the break, I really think that next year we'll see a, a much different stroll. Next year is going to be telling for him because if he's not performing well next year, I mean, does his dad just say, hey, look, I'm sorry, bud. It's time. Yeah. You know, we have to do this for the team. Yes. By that yeah. time, he'll be in F1, what, five years? Five or six. Yeah. Something yeah, like something that. Something like that. So at that point, you, you can't say, hey, I'm a beginner. I need to, you know, learn. No, you've, you've had him no. now, especially if Alonzo's up in the podiums, especially, and he's still mid or towards You're the back. Struggling to get mid. out of Q1. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then yeah. that's the point where we have to say, hey, look, not we, but <laughs> Papa yeah. has to say well, something. Hey, we need to go in a different direction here. Yeah. Well, one of the things that just jogged my memory, though, the other thing, too, is that you have to remember that a lot of people conveniently forget that before Lawrence Stroll bought Force India and turned it into Aston mm -hmm. Martin, when Carlos Sainz and Lance Stroll were teammates, Lance was every bit as competitive against his own teammate yeah. when it was Carlos Sainz went under Force India to the point where there was several well-publicized comings together during races and stuff where the two teammates were colliding into each other and everything. And a lot of people conveniently forget that Sainz, who is no slouch in the driving department, as we've seen in his time at Ferrari, they were very evenly matched when they were both at Force India. All right, so moving on. <laughs> I think we, I think we've we beaten that on. one down. So, yeah, I think so. So Gunther Steiner this week made some really interesting comments and everything because this year we had a really unprecedented stability in the driver lineups in the fact that every single driver that finished the 2023 season is going to be starting the 2024 season in the exact same car that they finished the previous year. That's and right. We didn't have a silly season this, this year. We did right? not have, yes. Yeah. We did not have a single driver change at all. The only right. fact, the only driver change that we had that. Yeah. from the beginning of 2023 until the end of 2023 was the, 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 you know, yes, exactly. The well-publicized exit of DeVries and the slotting in of Daniel Ricardo. Every single driver that finished 2023 will start in the same car in 2024. Now, with that having been said, next year, the silly season is going to be one for the ages because 12 of the 20 drivers that are in Formula One, their contracts end at the end of the 2024 season. And Steiner made the prediction. He seems to think that there will be at least three to four drivers that will be driving in 2024 that will not be driving in 2025. Wow. Their contracts with their current teams will not be renewed and no other team will pick them up. And he has also made the prediction that there will be a number of drivers that whose contracts are up that will not be in the same team at the start of 2025. They will be with a different team. So with that in mind, what are your thoughts? Man, that's an interesting one. So should we do some bold predictions here? I, I think we can make a couple predictions. Yes, yeah, definitely. all right. 
Let's see here. Let's go down the grid. Botas would stay where he is. Joe would stay where he is. Norris would probably stay where he is. I don't see him moving. But that means Piastri would stay there. Ferrari. Ferrari would be interesting, right? Yeah. Yes. It would be very interesting because I know for a fact that Sainz's contract is up. I couldn't yeah. find anything when Leclerc's contract ends. I know Lando and Oscar aren't going anywhere, but there are five drivers that I know off the top of my head that are locked in for 2025 and beyond at their current teams. You've got Max at Red Bull. You've got both of the drivers at McLaren are locked in until 2020, at least till the end of 20. I believe Norris is locked in until the end of 2025 and Oscar is locked in until the 20 end of 2026. And then you've got both Hamilton and Russell are locked in at Mercedes until the end of 2025. Yep. We talked about that during the podcast was how that was unusual for Hamilton that Hamilton has usually been signing one-year agreements with Mercedes and the fact that he signed a two-year contract was really telling about his confidence in Mercedes being able to get back to their winning ways. So we know that Russell and Hamilton are locked until 2025, Norris and Piastri and Verstappen. Haas, I think both of those are, are up at the end of the year. Pretty sure Alonso is not locked up after 2024. Yeah, I think he only Um, had a year extension. Yeah, I believe so. Here's my bold predictions. I don't think Yuki will be in his seat. Huh. Um, I now whether or not he's off the grid, I don't know because Yuki, I think he's in kind of a weird gray area that if he does really well this year, I don't know necessarily that he'll still be at Alphatari, but I definitely see one of the other teams making a move to, to retain his services. I think you're right that I think Botas and Joe will be in their teams at least until the end of the season and probably going forward for 2025. Now, whether or not they're there in 2026 when Sauber becomes Audi, that's a different one. And we're going to talk about that here in, in just a minute. I don't think that Magnuson will be in Formula One. Wow. As much as I love K-Mag, my prediction is, is if I were to pick two drivers that are not going to be on the grid at the start of the 2025 season, I'm going to say K-Mag and probably Sargent. <laughs> I hope that I'm wrong as far as Sargent is concerned. I'm hoping that this coming season is going to be way better for him. But those are the two that I'm going to say that probably won't be on the grid in 2025. I think Checo will definitely be in a different car. I think Steins will definitely be in a different car. And I definitely think that Albon will be in a different car. He has really turned his career around with the year that he had at Williams that I guarantee you that if any other driver slips up, there are going to be other teams that are going to want to secure his services. Steins moves somewhere else. There's a slot there. Albon yes. would be a really good compliment. To Leclerc. And I think Albon would really cherish a shot at Ferrari. No doubt. Yeah, about I it. think that that could be real interesting. Any other predictions from you? I think that's it for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go too no. far out. Another thing that came out this week that I saw that I thought was very, very interesting in the parallels that were made. I wouldn't even classify this so much as a rumor, just as somebody kind of drew some parallels and mm-hmm. it makes for some very interesting thoughts. Michael Schumacher retires. From Ferrari. Four years later, Mercedes buys the Braun GP and 
talks Schumacher out of retirement and into driving for Mercedes, a German team. One of the things that I saw, though, that they made the parallel was is Audi, another German manufacturer, yeah. will be taking over the Sauber team in 2026. There was the thought that what if they are able to talk Sebastian Vettel out of retirement four years after retiring from Formula One, they're able to talk him out of retirement and he spends a couple of years at Audi. And as much as I loved watching that man drive, uh, I would be a huge fan of that. So I was just <laughs> hope that, that that thinking is correct. But when he retired, it just seemed so final to me. You know, where most of the time when somebody retires, they him and haul a little bit about coming back or whatever. But he was very definitive. I'm not coming back. This is for my family, blah, 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 whatever. So I would really hope so. I just, I don't, I don't know how feasible that would be. I agree with you that I would love to see it happen. Yeah. But I don't think there's a chance in hell of it happening. I think that it's <laughs> one of those things that, like you said, when Schumacher left, I mean, he seemed pretty definitive, but he took basically a year off. And then after that, he kept a very close relationship with Formula One. And because he started his career off with Mercedes, I don't think it took a whole lot of, persuasion from mercedes to get michael back into especially having another german driver a young up-and-coming german driver in nico rosberg and mercedes basically saying hey we mentored you in your early part of your career will you now come back and help us build yeah on what braun gp did because we're buying the braun gp team who just won the constructors championship and just won a world title with jensen button Will you come back, help us continue to develop the car, use your vast knowledge to help us develop the car, also mentor Rossberg. So I don't think it took a lot of persuading to get him to do. Vettel doesn't need the money. There's not a dollar amount that they're going to throw at him to, to get yep. him to come back out of retirement. Another thing too, though, is that because Audi, of all the resources that they have behind it, and already with a really strong, well-established team in Sauber, they don't have quite the same needs that like what Mercedes had, because for anyone who watched the Braun GP documentary that just was released, it was released here on the Hulu platform here in, in the United States. I think in, in the EU, I think it was on Disney. Okay. Hulu in the States, yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't already watched it, go watch it. It's a, a absolutely yeah, really fantastic good. documentary. As they pointed out, for most of the season, they were literally driving on a shoestring budget. They had to cut a lot of their resources and everything, whereas Sauber's not going to have that same issue where they're going to have to have cut all kinds of resources and everything just in order to make the grid. Audi's not having to for lack of a better term, basically rebuild an entire team like Mercedes had to when they took over for Braun GP. I just, I don't see it happening. Yeah, I don't either. I would love it if it were to happen, but... I don't see it either. All right, Tech Corner this week. We're going to take, we're going to talk about some of the greatest innovations that were introduced in Formula One that were later banned, oftentimes quite quickly. So, <laughs> so one of the things about Formula One and one of the reasons why Corey and I love Formula One, the reason why a lot of fans love Formula One is the fact that because the way the rules are written is a lot of, especially during the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, the regulations were very, very vague. 
for lack of a better term. And they were really open to a lot of interpretation. By having so few rules, it took, and that's what led to a lot of the innovations that were created by Formula One was creative designers and engineers who were actually able to read the regulations and find those loopholes in it or would have ideas that would be allowed under the regulations, which led to a lot of these great innovative thinking. And so Formula One has always been known for innovation. There have been a number of cases, though, where the innovations were either so far ahead of their time or they were very much of their time, but the cost to develop them was so high that if they had been left in the regulations, it would have led to a quote-unquote arms race that would have caused costs to spiral even more out of control than they were. We're going to take, we're going to go through six of what I consider to be the best innovations, most of which were banned fairly quickly, or they proved to be ineffective and were later dropped, not by the rules, but just simply because like everything else in Formula One, if something doesn't work, it gets left behind in the dustbin pretty quickly. First one on the list is active suspension. In the early 90s, Williams pioneered active suspension with the FW14. And if you're not familiar with what active suspension is, is basically it is a computer-controlled suspension that would change the damping on all four corners based upon what corner the car was in in order to keep the car as stable as possible. So you could really kind of think of it as almost kind of like an anti-roll bar on super steroids, which led to the Williams being just an absolutely all-conquering dominant car. And so after 93, so the FW14 and the FW15 in 92 and 93, Nigel Mansell took the car to absolutely one of the most dominating seasons in Formula One in 92. And then in 93, Alain Prost took, basically took over the car and did the exact same thing. The Williams was just an absolutely dominant car because of the act of suspension because of that it actually led to in between the 93 and 94 seasons led to sweeping changes that banned most electronic driver aids and it also led to some of the biggest controversies which we talked about last week when we were talking about Flavio Briatore and the Benetton team is that the Benetton team was accused of leaving the active suspension code in their onboard processing. And the FIA, when they investigated and actually looked at the code and found the code buried in Benetton's controls, but because they Benetton said, well, the, you know, the code was left in there, but we never used it. And because they couldn't prove that it was actually used, even though they did find in the code several places where how it could be activated by going through a very complicated series of pedal and button pushes and things like that. They could never prove that it was actually ever activated. So they actually had to drop the matter against Benetton, but Benetton was accused of continuing to use active suspension even after the ban between 93 and 94. If you're not cheating, you're not racing. <laughs> That's exactly it. If you're not cheating, you're not winning. Winning, thank you. Yes, yes. Yes. Thoughts, Corey? I'm not a big fan of driver-assisted anyway. In fact, I'm not a really big fan of even the, the DRS system. I really think that the drivers that were driving before, especially DRS or before any of the electronics, things like that, I think were much more 
and tuned to the car itself versus having something automatically done for them. I totally agree. That should be disallowed completely as far as a driver assisted. That's fine. If you want to put that in my car, making sure that nobody's in my lane before I turn. Yeah, that's fine. But I'm not an F1. In F1, we shouldn't have those types of assists. No, I totally agree. In the show notes, I had traction control further down in the list, but I think that this is a good time to go ahead and just talk about it now because traction control and the active suspension were both banned at the end of 1993 going into the 94 season. And traction control is, is another one that goes in hand with active suspension. Whereas with the active suspension, it took would raise and lower the corners of the car in order to keep the car as level as possible going through a corner. Traction control is senses any kind of unplanned wheel spin and cuts power to that particular wheel in order to keep the car from losing control. It was banned at the same time. And there was a number of teams that in the years from 94 until I believe it was 2000, I want to say it was 2002, 2003, somewhere in there, where a number of teams were accused of actually having a form of traction control where, but instead of being where it would manage the wheels, they could tell by the revs of the engine if a wheel was spinning. And a number of teams were accused of having a type of traction control where they could take, they could actually cut power to the engine in the case that they sensed some kind of wheel spin. So I want to, like I said, I think it was 2002, 2003, somewhere in there that the FIA finally said, hey, we've been trying for 10 years to try to police this. We're spending unbelievable amounts of money in trying to police traction control. There you go. Have at it. You can all have traction control again. (laughs) And that lasted for five or six seasons until 2008 when the FIA mandated that all of the teams had to use the same control modules so that that way they could take and they could better monitor and audit the code that went into that. And so that's how they were actually able to start policing traction control again and ban it from Formula One. The next one on the list is the Tyrrell six-wheeler. How familiar are you with the Tyrrell six-wheeler? So I know we talked about it once or twice this year during the podcast. In the mid to late 70s, Gary, that was the designer at Tyrrell of the P34 chassis, came up with the idea of, and this was still in really kind of the golden age of aerodynamics in Formula One, when the teams were really starting to understand and really properly develop the aerodynamics to where what we see today. So one of the things that he came up with was the design of the Tyrrell six-wheeler, which go Google it. You can find pictures of it all over the place. But he came up with the idea of having a normal-sized wheel in the back. But at the front, they had two very significantly smaller wheels. Now, he claimed that the reason why they did it was to improve grip by having larger contact patches for the two front tires would create a much larger contact patch as opposed to having a single larger wheel. But the other side effect that it had was in addition, the two smaller wheels tucked underneath the front wing, the packaging was much, much tighter. And so therefore allowed for a lot less drag because during this time, designers and the engineers were really starting to get a handle on aerodynamics. They quickly figured out 
that two of the largest drag inducing parts of the car were the front and the rear wheels because you had these large wheels that were just hanging out there in the open air. That's one of the things that they had to really learn how to do was how to quote unquote shape the air around the wheels in order to mitigate the drag that they were causing. So that was part of the reason why they came up with that idea. And several of the other teams came up with variations on the theme. So Williams actually created a car that instead of having four front wheels, they actually had four rear wheels on the drive wheels because of the regulations and everything. You couldn't steer with them and everything. The thought was is that they would have create a significantly more contact patch when trying to apply power coming out of the corners and everything so that one was actually never raced and then there was another team that I believe it was either march or maybe it was lotus who took and created a dually style setup where they actually had four rear wheels the other team actually came up with a dually style we have dually pickup trucks which actually have four wheels on a single axle. And one of the teams actually came up with that idea as well, but that is another one that was never raced. Then in 19, I believe it was either 83 or 84, the FIA basically banned all six wheel vehicles and said that the car could only have four wheels. Tyrrell actually raced for almost two full seasons, but it ended up being one of those things that again, got left in the dustbin well before it was actually outlawed by the FIA because it was pretty uncompetitive car that in the two seasons that it raced it actually only managed to win one race next up is the mclaren brake steer this was a absolutely brilliant design mclaren was actually able to put a second brake pedal in the car and unlike now every driver in formula one now all use a hand clutch for starting the car from a dead stop. So like during the race starts and coming out of their pit box, they use a hand clutch to put the car into neutral. Well, in the 90s, now the drivers just strictly throttle with the right foot, brake with the left foot. And the way that the cars are set up, the cockpits are so narrow, there really isn't room for a third pedal in there anyway. Back then, when the cockpits were a little less narrow, they still had a clutch pedal, but they basically had four pedals in the cockpit. So they had a throttle, a clutch, and two brake pedals. One brake pedal would actually operate left side rear brake. The other brake pedal would actually manage to brake. And so the drivers had to kind of adjust their driving style, but they were actually able to brake wheels individually, which... By breaking the inside wheel, they were actually able to rotate the car faster. And because of that, they were actually able to shave off seconds off of their lap times. Claren had kept this such a secret that none of the other teams knew what was going on. It was only after, I believe it was David Coulthard, his car broke down during one of the races that one of the photographers ran over to the car, stuck his camera down into the cockpit and took a picture and was actually able to get a picture of the brake pedals. Another photojournalist, I I don't know if it was actually the same one or if it was a different one, but then he took me, he reported it, that he noticed that the brake disc on one of the McLarens was actually glowing mid-corner, which is a place where you're never braking at. But he happened to notice that the brake disc was still glowing, 
which means that the brakes were actually being applied. And that's what was happening is one is the drivers were actually braking mid corner in order to actually make the car rotate faster around the corner. And so when the car broke down and this photographer was actually able to get a picture inside the footwell of the car while it was on the side of the track and not in the garage where the teams wouldn't allow any photographers anywhere even near the car. But he was actually able to snap the now famous photo of the brake steer and it was shortly after that that the teams all protested and got it banned. Just crazy. I know we've talked about this in the past, but just the amount of intelligence and just grit to even think something like that up. It's just yes. amazing. And it was such a simple system. It wasn't like active suspension or traction control or anything like that or any like computerized aids or anything. It was really a very simple system. But who would have ever even thought that, hey, by being able to apply the brakes to the rear wheels independently, that's one of those innovations that it definitely helped in a racing perspective. But I'm glad because there's a lot of people who, nowadays who can't even hardly work one brake pedal. I'm right. so glad it's something that never <laughs> actually made it into a road going car. The next one on the list is the Mercedes DAS system, which was a fairly recent system that got banned very, very quickly after preseason testing. I believe it was last year during preseason testing of the 2022 season that this system got banned. Somebody noticed on the in-car camera, Lewis Hamilton moving the steering wheel in and out as he was driving down the straightaway. So what the DAS system basically did is it actually was actuated by the driver moving the, the steering wheel either towards the bulkhead or towards himself They're on the straightaway what that did is by when the driver would pull it back going into a corner and then would push it in towards the bulkhead on the straightaways they actuated it by pushing it into the bulkhead what it did is it changed the toe angle of the tire by moving the toe out on the straightaways that reduced the grip on the front tires, which tires don't need maximum grip like they do going into a corner. And so by having the toe come out and reduce the amount of grip on the front tires, which took and increased the speed going down the, the very straightaways, and then by moving it back going into the corner, it would automatically move the toe in, which took and then increased the grip of the tires, allowing the car to be able to have the normal turning characteristics but by having that less grip on the straightaways, it took and increased the straight line speed, but it also took and also had the additional benefit of reducing the amount of tire wear on the front tires. Because when you increase the toe of a tire because of the inherent tendency of the tire to take and want to turn in the direction that the toe is set up. And by having the toe in on both corners, it increases tire wear. But by being able to move the wheels out and reduce the toe, that takes and reduces the amount of wear on the front tires. And so it was a really, really innovative system. But a lot of the teams, as soon as they saw that and figured out what Mercedes was doing, the FIA was very quick to ban the system altogether. Right. <laughs> I would imagine they would be. <laughs> yes. Last on our list is the Brabham BT46B, or what was affectionately referred to as the fan car. It's another one of those ones that if you've never seen pictures of it, go Google it because this was a car that was so innovative 
it was never actually banned and i'll explain why here in just a minute but it was a card that was so effective in being able to accomplish what it was designed to do so gordon murray who was designer at brabham before and these were in the days before he would later move to mclaren and produce some of the greatest mclaren racing cars the mp44 the mp48 the mp44 that we've talked about multiple times this season because of red bull's dominance we had to make those parallels between the 4-4 that won 15 of 16 races in its day these were all designed by gordon murray well before gordon murray went to mclaren he was at brabham and he designed the fan car well this was a result when the fia in order to reduce the amount of ground effects because the cars have become so ridiculously fast during the first ground effect era, the cars would all all had quote unquote side skirts, which were movable metal apparatus that would take and basically seal off the sides of the car. So no air would leak out the side of the cars as they were going through turns. By having these side skirts that moved and that were basically rubbing the ground throughout the corners, it increased the amount of downforce created by the ground effects. Well, the FIA, in a measure to take and try to increase safety, because there was a number of incidents where the side skirts failed, causing really bad accidents, because the side skirt would fail, so therefore it would cause a sudden reduction in downforce from the ground effects of the car, which then led to drivers losing control, which is to be expected. The FIA banned the use of the side skirts and they instituted a minimum height require ride height requirement for the cars to try to reduce the ground effects. Quick tutorial, the way the ground effects work, because the air moving over the top of the car is moving much faster than the air moving underneath the cars, it takes and creates a low pressure effect, which then takes in the, like a reverse airplane wing, sucks the car down to the ground. The reason why we had that issue in Las Vegas with Carlos Sainz is because that pressure sucked up the water yes. main because the suction was there. Yes, exactly. And so the FIA, in order to reduce the benefits of the ground effects of that error, they banned the side skirts and they instituted a minimum ride height. Well, Gordon Murray came up with the brilliant idea and he claimed that it was to help cooling of the car initially he fitted a fan to the back of the engine area of the car but by doing that and having this fan on the back of the car it actually took me it would suck air underneath the car and exit it back out underneath the rear wing so thus increasing the amount of air flowing through there which took and was actually able to increase the amount of ground effects that the car was able to generate downforce. When they showed up at the first race with the car, they actually told Nikki Lauda, take it easy during practice and qualifying because they didn't want to tip their hand at just how fast the car was. They did that. And then in the race, Nikki Lauda just absolutely dominated. I mean, he just blew everybody out of the water and everybody all of a sudden knew that what kind of advantage that this car was going to have. Ever the politician, Bernie Ecclestone, who at the time, this these were the days before he became the Formula One Supremo, he was the team principal at Brabham. And after the first two races, seeing just how dominant the car was going to be, he quickly and very quietly retired the car so that 
he could avoid any kind of complications of continuing to develop the car only to have it banned by the FIA. So before the FIA even had the chance to ban the car, he quietly got rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) Smart move, right? Yes, absolutely. Those are a couple of the great innovations that were either quickly banned or ultimately banned by the FIA. But a number of those innovations are things that, like Corey was saying, that we get to enjoy today. Things like traction control, active suspension, aerodynamics, things like that are all things that we get to enjoy today on our road cars that at one point or another were all legal in Formula One. Those innovations that led to the ultimate adoption by road going cars that we get to enjoy today so your thoughts it's amazing to me how ingenious people that are at f1 are not only how creative they are but to take an idea be able to mold that idea into an actual something to affect and sometimes great effect looking back at the braun gp they had dual diffusers, which Braun was going back and saying, it didn't really help us too much, but on <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a season when everybody else was using it, their times uh, slowed up quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, things like that. And we talked about it earlier in the season where Pirelli uses, somewhat uses F1 as a proving ground for new technology coming out. So they'll have mm-hmm. the F1 drivers go out and test new, and we saw it actually this year, they'll go out and test new tires and see how those tires hold up and we get to benefit we as a the general populace the peons of the world the the non-f1 drivers get to benefit from that so all things like that i really just i like watching the the flow going from f1 going down and eventually make it into the common marketplace absolutely so it's the whole win on sunday sell on Mm -hmm. monday it's the same for the manufacturers that are involved with it. Pirelli is one of those names that when you think of high-performance tires, Pirelli is one of the first names that come to mind. And it's because of their involvement with motorsport, not just at Formula One, but also in other sports car racing, you know, with their involvement with Le Mans. And then there's other manufacturers, Firestone and their association with IndyCar, Goodyear with their association with NASCAR, and then you've got multiple manufacturers that are all involved with sports car racing and either IMSA or the World Endurance Championship in Europe, teams like Michelin and Bridgestone. And it's all because of their associations. Oftentimes, especially when they're winning, these tire manufacturers, they take and see that effect. I'll pay a few more bucks to get this particular tire because of the innovation and its reputation that comes from motorsport and things like that. I'm a Michelin man myself. On my car specifically, Michelins are just about the only tire that I'll run. I won't run it just because of the Michelin name. I run Michelin tires because of their reputation with motorsport and then also my own anecdotal evidence of saying, okay, well, I bought this set of Michelins. I've run them. I've put them through their paces. I've run them on the track. I know how good of a tire it is. So that's why I continue to stick with Michelin. Now, if Michelin suddenly drops off in their quality or their performance, and I can see that noticeable difference in my own streetcar, then I'm going to switch to something else. But the first ones that I'm going to be looking at are the ones that are other manufacturers that are involved in motorsports like Pirelli and Continental and things like that. I totally agree that these innovations 
are what lead to the safety features and the performance features that we get to enjoy on our own yeah, street cars. Exactly. exactly. All right, then. So I think we're going to wrap it up for today. What do you think, Corey? I think Any so. final thoughts? No, I think we're good. All right, then. We're going to call it a day. You've been listening to F1 Break Check. We're going to come back to you next week with a whole new set of news and rumors and a, another fascinating off-season topic. So until then, for Corey Brune, I'm Scott Vick. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Vick and Corey Broom, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.